This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode... Nova Scotians are, are, are hurting uh, in a significant way. And uh, we're seeing a lot of different types of memorials happen. We'll get the latest updates out of Nova Scotia, where the death toll has once again increased. And questions are being asked about why an emergency alert wasn't sent out sooner. Could BC see some of these social distancing measures relaxed as early as May? But one of the things I think we could be doing more of is really reallocating some of our road space and streets for shared use, creating more temporary open space. And what will commerce look like in this new world after the COVID-19 pandemic? And BC is looking at testing select groups for the coronavirus antibodies in the hopes of coming up with a successful treatment for COVID-19. Serology testing can provide important information on the true extent of the infection in our communities. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Let's get an update now on what we know about what went on in Nova Scotia over the weekend. I mean, the tragedy there just continues to grip the country. Uh, We watched the death toll very carefully. It increased once again yesterday. Officials reporting that there were now 22 victims in the killing spree that began late Saturday night. Let's get the latest now with the help of Sarah Ritchie, our global news anchor and reporter in Halifax. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Now, what do we know right now about the timeline? Has any have the RCMP shed any more light on how this all unfolded? Uh, just a little bit. Uh, RCMP didn't provide an in-person update yesterday, so we didn't have any opportunity to ask them any more questions about what's happened. They did put out a little bit of a Q&A that they wrote themselves to media um, yesterday afternoon. That's when we got the update that at least 22 people were killed in this incident. We do know that they are still processing some crime scenes, including uh, five structure fires where they had told us previously they expected they could find more bodies. So we're not sure at this point if that death toll is a final count. We can say at this point, we know a few more things about what happened. We definitely know now that the suspect in all of this was wearing an authentic RCMP uniform at one point while he was carrying out this attack. We know, of course, too, that he was driving around that uh, mocked up RCMP cruiser, a vehicle he had made to look like, it seems he'd made to look like an RCMP cruiser. He was not driving a real RCMP vehicle, as far as we know. Uh, and as, as far as the timeline goes, we have a little bit more information. We know that the first firearms complaint came in at around 10.30 p.m. in Portapic, and that RCMP found several casualties inside and outside of a home at that point. We also know from witnesses there were several house fires at around 11 o'clock that evening in the same area. And so that's where things started, and police described it as a quickly evolving situation and a chaotic scene. Right. So that was Saturday night. And we know that there was some more killing that happened on Sunday morning. And there's lots of questions, I guess, Sarah, about those hours in between and why the RCMP didn't issue an alert to people letting them know what was going on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We don't know at this point exactly when everybody uh, who was involved in this was targeted. So so in terms of the... um, 
you know, the, the overall timeline, we do expect RCMP to release that at some point, which should give us a clearer picture of when and where the suspect was moving around in the province and, and who he was targeting at certain points in time. Um, at this point, what we know is that RCMP sent out a tweet uh, the evening of sa- on Saturday evening to tell people that there was a, a firearms situation, a weapons complaint, and that people should stay in their homes. And it wasn't for another almost eight and a half hours mm-hmm. that they sent another tweet. So, of course, that alert that could have gone out didn't. And what we found out yesterday from the Premier of the province, um, those alerts go out through the Provincial Emergency Management Office. And so the Premier was asked why that didn't happen. And he said the protocol is that emergency management was activated. They were standing by, ready to send out an alert on Sunday morning. They had staff waiting, but they never got the request from RCMP. And the RCMP haven't responded to that? Uh, no, as of as of now, we haven't heard from them on, on that. Um, they didn't speak to media yesterday, so they didn't answer any questions. Mm-hmm. When they were asked about it on Monday, the answer that we got was simply, they don't know. They don't know yet why that alert didn't come out and that it's part of what they're looking into wow. in this investigation. All right, Sarah, we're also learning a lot more about the victims in this case, and there must be many memorials that are going up here as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nova Scotians are... are are hurting uh, in a significant way and uh, we're seeing a lot of different types of memorials happen. Uh, I can tell you the RCMP headquarters in Dartmouth just across the harbour from Halifax here is uh, filling up outside with uh, with flowers and memorials of all kinds. People are hanging Nova Scotia tartan uh, outside of their doors or tying it onto light posts or uh, taking pictures of it and putting it on social media as a way to show solidarity. There's also something that started during the pandemic is this Facebook group called the Ultimate Online Nova Scotia Kitchen Party. Mm-hmm. And that's where people had been, you know, sharing their musical talents and and just sort of having a little bit of fun in amidst this pandemic. Well, we're now seeing musical tributes and condolences from really around the world uh, filling up in that Facebook page. So it's it's quite lovely to see. Well, that's the one nice thing, right? That some kind of comfort for people. They must be finding it quite difficult then with the isolation and staying at home to be able to express that. Do you find, is, is the community a bit frustrated by that? Yeah, I think it's going to be really hard for people uh, in the coming days and weeks and months as all of this unfolds. You know, I think in small communities in Nova Scotia, when something like this happens, I mean, something like this doesn't happen, but when somebody passes away, their natural instinct is to go to your neighbors to drop off some food or to, um, you know, give them a hug and bring some comfort. And, And we can't do that at this point. And that is really hard. There is a virtual vigil that's being planned for Friday evening. And so I know people will be taking part in that way, trying to uh, find a way to come together despite our separation. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. That is Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax. This is Mornings with Simi. When looking at diagnosed cases of COVID-19, British Columbia has seen a leveling out of confirmed cases, while many other jurisdictions continue to see dramatic increases. That's Global News reporter Richard Zussman. And yes, he's absolutely right. We are seeing an encouraging trend in the number of transmissions of COVID-19 here in BC. In fact, Ontario Premier Doug Ford has said that BC is three weeks ahead of Ontario when it comes to flattening that curve. And Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry 
has now been saying that, you know, we could start to see some of these measures uh, doing social distancing perhaps relaxed in mid-May. That's all to come. So we thought, what does that look like, though? So let's take a look at some places that are already ahead of us on that curve. Uh, how about Denmark? They began reopening parts of their economy about a week ago. When we last checked in with Shane Woodford, they were just about to start doing that. So let's find out how they're doing now. He's a freelance journalist, of course, formerly known right here from CKNW, now living in Denmark. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So it's been a week. We last talked to you when things were about to start reopening. What's it been like? Mm. Yeah, it's been sort of interesting. I mean, sort of on the surface, there's a little more activity. There's a lot more people out. I'm noticing a few more businesses are starting to open. Uh, There's a bit more of the usual sort of flow and routine uh, as, you know, schools up to grade five are now back in. So you see that thing in the morning where parents are taking their kids to school and then, you know, you know, in the afternoon they all come home again, which has been absent for a really long time. Um, as of this week, uh, Denmark has begun to reopen uh, the healthcare system. So a bunch of non-critical procedures were basically told uh, that they had to wait. Um, family doctors were told only to see critical patients. Uh, they've now reverted back to normal and encouraging people with like non-COVID stuff, uh, you know, any kind of health malady to co- call their doctor or they now hospital can take, you know, the knee surgeries, that kind of thing. Uh, tattoo parlors, hairdressers, uh, dentists, uh, driving, uh, driving learning services, uh, they're all reopening as of this week. So we're starting to tiptoe now into sort of a more of a normal society, albeit with all the social distancing restrictions still in place and the public service still largely working from home. So how do the people feel about that? I, you know, I know that uh, I think people are quite nervous here about that idea of yeah. going back. What does that look like? How do we do this? What do you, so how yeah. are people responding there? Well, uh, I think people are sort of being really cautious. Uh, you know, you still, when you go out, um, sure, the shopping streets and things like that are a little busier. There's more stores open. There's more people kind of out and about. But people still are, you know, <laughs> very, very leery about coming anywhere near anybody else. There's these very cautious dances as you go in and out of businesses. Businesses have signs saying, you know, only two people inside at a time, three people inside at a time, whatever their size is. Um, so, yeah, things are kind of getting back into a little bit more of the quote-unquote normal uh, but you still see, you know, lines outside the bakery where people are standing three or four meters apart. And you still have that kind of um, kind of cautious when you're out on a hike. You know, every, one mm-hmm. go, party goes left, the other one goes right yeah. on the trail. And you try not to come anywhere near each other. I had a, a sort of a funny but not really that funny experience uh, yesterday. My Unfortunately, my son sneezed. And there was a senior citizen oh. um, on a bench, like, within a few feet. And it was just, it was an instant thing. But as you know, with this day and age, yeah. and the poor, the poor, the poor lady. I felt so bad, and she like visibly started, and it just was to me it was like kind of reinforced like how nervous everybody is under the surface. I mean, people are walking around. You're out in the sun on the bench, but still, there's that invisible fear looking over there. Yeah. And so, hey, listen, know, I'm I'm somebody who has allergies, and so sneezing at this time of yeah. year, it, I've had to actually take medicine way earlier than I normally would because he sneezed in public, yeah. just as you said. And people look at you like, what are you even doing outside? Yeah, I was in the grocery store the other day and just had a little tickle in my throat and had to give kind of a half cough and found Ooh. myself going, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Look around. Just, they're totally innocent things, but you, but you kind of go and do them. I, I was listening to the New York Times Daily podcast, and they kind of summarize what we're going right now in a very apt way by calling it the dance and the hammer. 
and the fact that we're we're now as a society kind of dancing out a little bit, dancing out a little bit, kind mm-hmm. of seeing what works. And then if something flares up, oh, got to bring down the hammer again, right? And so while we kind of tiptoe into more of a normal society here in Denmark, I'm still cognizant the borders are closed. We still get outbreaks around the world. There's, you know, the potential for a second and a third wave or whatever comes our way. And at any time we could go back into a lockdown is, you know, maybe this doesn't work or maybe that works better. Mm. Um, and the other thing, too, that I'm cognizant of is it's not an immediate, you know, like it's been one week to the day today that schools went back in up to grade five. Uh, and you kind of find yourself looking at the numbers and thinking, okay, they're going to go up, they're going to go down. Yeah. You have to remind yourself that it takes, you know, there's a 14-day incubation period on the coronavirus. It's probably going to take two, three weeks before you see any kind of sign one way or the other of, of what is working or what is not working. And yet in the meantime, you've still got Sweden doing what Sweden does. Yeah, that's really, <laughs> there's there's actually an article today in one of the local publications saying, are we more like Sweden now that we've relaxed all the restrictions? And to some degree, sure. Uh, but I'm still I'm caught off guard by how Sweden is going about what they're doing. I mean, everything there is still a suggestion. So, I mean, they, the government has the powers to close things, but they're still just saying, okay, you guys can go ahead and do it. We, we hope you kind of go do that. And I've noticed over the last week that there's been uh, a very concerted effort on the behalf of the Swedish government to do some damage control on their international sort of perception. Reputation, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, their health minister actually held an English-only press conference for international media last week to kind of try and say, hey, listen, guys, everything's fine here. And there was a line that was echoed by both the Swedish health minister and the Swedish prime minister, which caught my ear. And it sounded like a completely you know, one of those spin kind of lines that they cook up in a public relations perspective behind the scenes before they trot the politicians out to the the microphones. And it was this, and it went along something like this, uh, that, holy, listen, our strategy is working. We can continue doing our strategy for a really long time. That said, we have kind of failed seniors and we need to make an adjustment there. And I thought to myself, you know, if your strategy is failing seniors, which is the single largest, most at-risk group of the coronavirus then I'm going to suggest politely that your strategy is probably not the best one, and nor is it really working. So uh, as I look now, Sweden has uh, over five times the amount of deaths that Denmark does. Uh, They are by far the hardest hit Nordic nation. They've had two of their deadliest days yesterday and today, 185 deaths yesterday, 172 today. Uh, where they go from here, we don't know, although I did have one interesting line of thought from an epidemiologist who I saw interviewed the other day, and he raised the idea that, okay, in the, in the immediacy of this, there may be big differences, but if we play out, you know, six months, eight months down the road, when we're going through the maze of this coronavirus, maybe we all more or less get to the same place, which I thought mm. was an interesting concept. That is an interesting concept. Well, listen, uh, Shane, thanks for checking in with us. Yeah, always good to talk to you. That is Shane Woodford, our freelancer in Denmark. Of course, uh, used to be a CKNW reporter, very familiar voice to us, uh, giving us the update on Denmark, where they have relaxed some restrictions over the last week, but they are taking things quite slowly, seeing how they go. And Shane made a great point there, too. If there's two countries that epitomize the two sides of a coin idea when it comes to the response to COVID-19, one would definitely be Sweden, where it's a country that has probably... People don't look at it quite the same way, like its reputation has probably suffered throughout all of this because of the fact that they have been so 
almost laid back about this. And yes, quite disproportionately, uh, they have lost many, many seniors. Their death rate is about the same as Canada's. Uh, about between 1,500 to 2,000 people have died. Uh, but our population, keep in mind, is four times the size of Sweden. So they are losing more people per capita by far than we are. So I'd say Sweden, in the eyes of people around the world, well, we don't look quite the same at it anymore. The country that I think is the opposite of that on the other side of that coin would be New Zealand. People are now looking at New Zealand going, wow, look what they did. They, not, they didn't just flatten the curve. They crushed it. Uh, they are, they're also talking about opening things back up. Uh, but they, um, they lost hardly a couple dozen people were killed as a result of COVID-19. Uh, and they really managed to get things under control quickly by doing the opposite of what Sweden did. So yeah, very interesting to follow along with those two countries there. This is Mornings with Simi. Heard a story in the news about that Chilliwack man, and this is so lovely. He's urging people to cut their own hair. We kind of have to these days, right? And the hair, perhaps, of some family members uh, to help out our healthcare system. So he's asking people to donate what you would have spent on that haircut to support local medical professionals instead. And I thought, what a nice idea. Also, very realistic in this day and age. It's been more than a month now since many hair salons and barbers closed their doors because of the pandemic. And we're wondering if you have been brave enough to try to cut your own hair. I did. Just my bangs, though. That was all that I was able to do. That's all that I had the guts to be able to actually do. And it turned out okay. The rest of it, I'm just going to let it grow out. Well, Sarah Rose is a hairstylist with Brush Salon in East Vancouver. She spoke with our Nikki Reitmeyer to get some tips for men and women who are hoping to cut their hair at home. Do you have any hair tips for guys who are considering cutting their hair at home? Um, I would say that in the first couple weeks, my options for most men were wearing a hat. So that has now <laughs> since changed. Um, next option would be finding a great co-quarantine partner to help you. Or if you have any mirrors that can assist you in the bathroom, you can either just clean up around your ears and your neckline and go from there or try out a new hairstyle because nobody's going to see you right now in the weird in-between phase of regrowth. <laughs> right. So just accept that maybe 2020 is going to be the year of long hair for guys. And this is how it is. That could be the start of it right now. It's I feel like there's either long hair or fully shaved and everyone's kind of trying out both avenues right now. Now, what about for ladies? Yes, we do have the privilege, those of us with longer hair, of hiding our mistakes when we try to trim our own split ends. But for those with shorter hair and more complicated haircuts, it can certainly get a little bit trickier. Do you recommend, say, ordering professional scissors off Amazon and trying it at home? Or what kind of tips do you have for ladies to keep their hair together while in quarantine? Well, yes, I think definitely women have benefit when you have longer hair, but you do start to, I find, look at maybe the, the finer things that you wouldn't pay attention to when we were busier in life. So the, the dead ends tend to come up a little quicker. I think one thing, either ordering nicer scissors if you are lucky enough to have a budget to help you with that or just make sure that your scissors in the kitchen are sharp enough item to help you also that they're clean and but it is acceptable it's acceptable to use the kitchen scissors if we have to if you have to yes just make sure they are sharp because dull scissors are just going to in turn create more dead ends for you oh okay very good yeah, I think that the key word when approaching your own hair with scissors in this moment where we are all under 
stress and just start with less is more. So when you are approaching your hair with your scissors, just know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You will see your hairstylist eventually and maybe just start with a little bit of a dust stain and go from there. I would suggest women with curly or wavy hair. You could create these dusting or trims on yourself with the dry hair because you can see the texture that you're creating easier and the shape that you're creating as well. Whereas women with straight, fine hair, dampen or wet your hair because you'll be able to get a better tension or hold on your hair rather than it being slippery and silk when it's dry. Now, what about for those who their roots are starting to show and they're thinking about doing what I'm sure as a hairstylist you do not recommend, which is going to that aisle in the drugstore and picking out a box of boxed drugstore hair dye. Do you have any tips for for what to purchase or how to do it to do it the best way they possibly can? Uh, firstly, the word box dye, I think just sends a spark of cringe through every single hairstylist's soul. It just, (laughs) the word dye, firstly, it's color, color, color. That's what we've all been chanting from our apartments and houses since every client has been texting us. Um, so that being said, it, The word makes us cringe, so the act also makes us cringe. The best way for me to compare a box color is when you see a shirt or a pair of pants that say one size fits all. So if you're approaching this with that mindset understand that that isn't always the truth. Your hairstylist has had so many years of education and understanding and practice and hands-on knowledge that one quick fail swoop of a purchase at a drugstore is not going to give you the satisfaction or coverage that you require. And it also may cost you more in the long term when you are coming out of quarantine. Now, just between you and I, As a hairstylist, are you already mentally preparing yourself for having to fix a lot of self-isolation haircuts when this whole thing ends? (laughs) Yes, I am. And I've definitely received a lot of texts from clients and messages on Instagram about things that they have been up to for themselves, on their husbands, on their kids. So I am more than ready to be working on a hairathon, which I am calling it, when I get out of quarantine. And I've already told the owners that I am there 24-7, I think for the first week, ready to help my ladies. Sarah, for anyone who wants to get in touch with you or follow you on social media, uh, how can they go about doing so? You can find me on Instagram at Sarah, S-A-R-A, Rose, R-O-S-E, buzz b-u-z-z that's sarah rose buzz on instagram thank you for that sarah and nikki and i'm just gonna say in defense of the hair color from the drugstore there's nothing wrong with it i just did it last weekend and my hair looks fine everything is great and you know what it's only temporary you can always go back to the salon later on this is mornings with simi
Well, as if we don't have enough going on in this province already, we're heading into wildfire season. Also, we've got a spring melt going on right now, which is causing some flooding concerns. And now, we know the rain last night was a very welcome a bit of weather for the fire crews that are still battling some of the hot spots up in Squamish. The McGee Road blaze is still burning, but it is now under control. So that means that some of the residents who had been evacuated from their homes have been allowed to now go back. But when it comes to flooding, bit of a different situation there. Uh, the rainy spring weather is a bit of a problem for the communities that are already worried about flooding, such as Cash Creek. So let's get an update on the Cash Creek situation now. Spokesperson for uh, Cash Creek, Wendy Coomber, joins us. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning. So what is the latest? What is happening in Cash Creek? Well, it's a beautiful morning here, and it's it's quite dry, which we're happy to see. Um, I just checked with the uh, the operators of the equipment along the creek this morning, and they tell me that it it uh, came up to the road uh, once, but uh, didn't uh, didn't pour over, which it had done the night before a couple of times. So that's really good news because we expected the the creek to uh, to peak last night for. Uh, Peak levels, so uh, the fact that it didn't uh, is is good news. Although the rain forecast for tonight is a little worrisome, they also tell me there's less debris uh, in the water because they're at the culverts cleaning those out uh, continually. They're they're there for 24 hours a day, and um, yeah, so that's saying telling me that uh, the the waters the, the flow isn't coming down from the hills right now. So good. But yeah. uh, on the on the other hand, the water in the river is coming up, which the creek empties into, and they, they both flow through town. So now we're now we're looking, now we're keeping track of the river. Man, if it's not one thing, it's another, Wendy. Right? It is. Yeah. Okay, so you've got some people who are out of their homes. How many people are we talking about? Uh, about uh, ten to twelve people. Okay, so not too bad right now. But is there lots of sandbagging going on? Or what kind of preparations are we doing? Well, because of our physical distancing requirements, we, we didn't have our sandbagging be this spring, so we've left uh, deposits of sand and piles of sandbags uh, in various areas around town for people to uh, fill themselves and take back to their, their residences. Um, we've also got uh, crews with heavy equipment uh, cleaning, keeping the culverts clean so the the water can run through. So the debris buildup in front of them is is always worrisome because it, you know, it it hooks on to things in the in the stream and and it just builds until uh, it it overflows. And the sloughing of the banks has been a real issue this year because. Uh, it, it's been undercutting uh, a lot of yeah. every year that we've had a flood. It, it's a different route, and uh, so it, it's really hard to predict anymore. You just said something there that made me think. So when you've got usually in a, in a situation like this, it's kind of all hands on deck, right? Everybody pitching in together. We can't do that right now because of the isolation and everything. So that must be making this more challenging. Well. It is in a way. Uh, people are finding their own ways of of doing it around the, the physical distancing part of it. Um, uh, you know, we do the best that we can. Sometimes we get a little closer than we should, but um, you know, what can you do? Yeah, exactly. it's, a, it's an emergency situation. Okay. So then, what is the next thing that you're watching for? Well, we're watching the uh, the river now. In fact, I'm just sitting on Old Caribou Road next to it. Uh, 
checking to see how high it is. It uh, it's still within its banks. People are are a little concerned about it, but uh, we've got about three hundred and ten, three hundred and twenty people on evacuation alert who live uh, uh, in low areas next to the river. So they know that. Uh, they should be ready to uh, evacuate if necessary, but um, we typically we don't have a whole lot of problems with the river, but this isn't a typical year. Yeah. I don't think there's going to be a typical year anymore. No, that's so true. Wendy, thank you so much for your time, and listen, good luck. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Serology testing can provide in important information on the true extent of the infection in our communities. So that is Dr. Niraj Sood with the University of Southern California talking about a method of testing for COVID-19 infection that is coming to BC. So we wanted to learn more about this. What is it all about? How will it impact you? Joining us now, Dr. Horatio Bach, a UBC adjunct professor, Division of Infectious Diseases. Dr. Bach, thank you for being here. Hello, good morning. What type of testing are we talking about here? Is this antibody testing? Yes. So, um, in general, when we have an infection, our body is defending us through the immune system. So, we are able to produce antibodies that will circulate in our blood for long term or short term. Now, uh, the test they are planning to do that is the right one to do is to test if someone was exposed or infected to uh, the virus of COVID-19 but didn't show symptoms, basically you can track based on the uh, types of antibodies. So there are many antibodies circulating in our blood. So what they take a look is one antibody, if it's a positive, means that you are exposed recently. And there are another type of antibody that you can check that will tell you if it's a, a, a long time ago you have been exposed. Okay, so somebody who was exposed or came close to it but didn't show any of the symptoms. Yeah, it may be that some people get uh, uh, they get infected, but they don't show symptoms. Not everyone, you know, not the virus right. is attacking us any disease. Not everyone is uh, with the disease. So we have our uh, immune system that is unique for everyone. And that's the reason that not everyone will be sick. Okay. That, yeah. So how does that help us then? So if we can test for that, what, why would we do that? What does that mean? Okay, so you can check, for example, uh, what I read in this uh, post uh, that... Um, People that are coming from, like, uh, you know, from um, foreign countries, so you want to test if they were exposed or not. Mm. So you can check, basically, people, supposedly, maybe it's for occupational uh, system. So if you check someone and you say, okay, you have the antibodies, you are covered, go back to work. Those that they don't have, they can claim, you know what, you still have to stay home or take uh, precaution to, to avoid to be infected. That can tell you, uh, for epidemiologic um, um, studies, can tell you how the virus advanced in specific area, how many people were infected, how many people were, um, um, you know, recovered. Okay, so will that also tell us then perhaps who needs a vaccine and who doesn't need a vaccine? 
that is correct, but I guess when the vaccine will be available, probably will be for everyone mm-hmm. because um, it may be some a kind of a, a mutation that virus can produce right. and your immune system cannot be the best. So probably the vaccine will cover that. So definitely it's recommended to everyone. So how quickly can we do this antibody test? Like, can we do it so that people can get back to work and we can open things up? <laughs> That's a, the big question. Uh, the problem is when we are attacked, say, by a virus or bacteria, doesn't matter, um, they, uh, let's call them intruders. So our body will take this uh, piece of intruder and will make small pieces. And these small pieces will be used by the immune system to produce antibodies. The question is, which one of these pieces is representative and you can validate to say, okay, if I'm testing this piece, I am sure that I'm covering all the patients, I mean, people that they were infected or not. Uh, I know they are working very hard. There are a lot of kids in the market that uh, are not being validated, and that's the main problem. So that's the reason you see there are a lot of false positive or false negative that is not accurate. So it needs to be validated, and probably the public health is the one uh, responsible for that, and I know they are working to get something that is reliable, and when you are tested, basically will say, yes, it works. That requires a long validation for many, many patients as well. Okay, so how close are we to having that here in BC? Uh, that's a good question. I know they are working. Um, I, 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 don't, I know in Germany they are using that and US, but again, it's not yet uh, validated. Uh, it's like a preliminary screening, but doesn't mean that you know we catch all the cases. Uh, it can take, I don't know, I would say a, one month, two months, depends when you, you get the right one and you start to test the patient, and then, you know, the testing takes time. You have to recruit people. You have to, to check to see if a, a, a go to the all the chart, you know, about what the, the disease may have this right. person. So it, it's a long time, probably um, if, a few months, let's say. See, because we've, we keep hearing about how promising this is, but months away, that's a, a long time. You know, you cannot take some, you know, we need to be very precautious also. You cannot take a, a, some tests and say, okay, we are testing. You say you are okay, you are not okay, and maybe you are missing cases. Now I heard that some of the kids, they have 30% a false negative means that you are detecting and is not valid. I mean, you still have a 70% okay, but... You know, how you can discriminate between people. Okay, you go to work, you can stay home, or so on. You know, it's a, it's a problem. Um, maybe there are other, other situations that the, the, the government, you know, start to lift some of the, 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 the strict uh, measurement we have right. now. But uh, a, a reliable test is not going to be in the next week, that's for sure. So then, Dr. Bach, should, we, should the regular people like me, then should we just be more cautious because we keep hearing all these hopeful things, but... As you're pointing out, this is all months away. Well, that's my guess. It's not something uh, you need. Again, you have to collect blood and you have to test and you have to see which one of these pieces of the virus are the reliable one that you cover all the spectrum. And uh, that is a problem. It takes time. Yeah. So this must be a fascinating time to be in your line of work, though, Dr. Bach, to work at infectious diseases. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Um, the problem we have now is the main problem. We don't know anything about how this disease progress. Sometimes you can uh, uh, shed the virus. Sometimes the virus disappear, and there are people that reco- they recover and they are released from the from the hospital or care center, 
and they still have the virus. So we don't understand yet how the, the, the immune system is uh, uh, working with this uh, virus. Maybe the virus is blocking a lot of uh, uh, a system inside the body. So it's, it's very complicated. We don't have answer right now. It's a huge uh, developing, development now about how to, uh, how to cope with the immunology, mm-hmm. what we call, what will happen in the long term. Are those antibodies covering for short times? Going out after one year, you have to, uh, uh, you can get again the disease. So it's a lot of questions that we don't know. And that will come with time, you know. Unfortunately, that comes very fast. And, you know, we are putting effort to try to, to get the answers. Right. But have you ever seen anything like this particular virus before? It seems like it's unusual. It's very unusual, yeah. The way that is, uh, uh, you know, also there is a big question for neurologists, why people with this, this with the COVID-19, they lost the, 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 the sense of smell. Yeah. That was, so it's something that the virus is doing. We don't know what it's doing inside the body. Maybe it's a multi-organ uh, 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 attack. We don't know yet. We know that the virus, when it starts to be severe, it starts to be, um, uh, it proliferates in many parts of the body. At some point, that there is multi-organ failure, basically. Wow, Dr. Bach, thank you so much for this. I learned so much. Thank you for the invitation. Have a great day. Anytime. That is Dr. Horatio Bach, UBC Adjunct Professor, Division of Infectious Diseases, explaining to us what these antibody tests are all about. BC is getting ready to start doing this. But as you heard Dr. Bach say, it's important, but there's still so many questions that we have about this. So we will definitely be calling him back for an update on that. This is Mornings with Simi. I do believe, and I've said this repeatedly, how important it is for us to have access to outdoor areas, particularly in urban areas where um, where people being cooped up inside um, can lead to a lot of other anxieties and, and challenges and problems, including mental health problems. All right, that's Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry at her daily update yesterday afternoon. We know that getting outside is important, but with that physical distancing, it can also be a bit challenging. Uh, want to get outside, you want to get that fresh air, it's good for your mind, it's good for your body to keep moving. But as Gordon McDonald and I were talking about earlier, walking down the street too, if you've got a dog like I do, and you're kind of doing the zigzag, right? You're, people are coming towards you and you're like, okay, I'm going to go out on the street or can I turn here so that this person has more space? It can become challenging to fit everybody in outside. Well, Vancouver City Councilor Lisa Dominato thinks that we can do better. She thinks uh, we can get more action when it comes to creating space outdoors where people can safely go outside and still practice that physical distancing. And she joins us now to talk more about that. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. What are you thinking here? What can we do? Yeah, no, thanks. I really appreciate you sharing that clip from Dr. Henry yesterday because that's absolutely, she's saying she's encouraging us to get out more, um, uh, obviously doing it safely, distancing ourselves. But one of the things I think we could be doing more of is really reallocating some of our road space and streets for shared use, um, uh, creating more temporary open space. So as you point out, we're doing these zigzags, trying to get out as cyclists or pedestrians, uh, joggers. And I think we have an opportunity here to look at how we're using our road space uh, across the city to en- better enable walkers, joggers, cyclists um, to pass safely as they're trying to keep that distance during uh, this pandemic. Like, shouldn't we have done this weeks ago? I mean, here now we are talking about potentially reopening a few things. Like, we should have done this a month ago. 
Well, I think, as you know, uh, we started to see congestion around Stanley Park, and so we moved, and that's actually a good example of um, the Stanley Park closure uh, to traffic, uh, and then Beach Avenue as well, the eastbound lane. Uh, But I actually think we could be in this a bit longer, and so I think there's an opportunity here to, and we can do it nimbly, is look at some of our existing bikeways and greenway networks. We're seeing increased use in terms of cyclists as well as pedestrians on those areas. And so it can be as simple as um, putting up the signage that says local traffic only, and this is for cyclists, joggers, walkers, and really giving license to people to do what people are starting to do. As you say, I've been, I'm a jogger and a cyclist. I've been jogging on the road in some cases because of a number oh, yeah. of people on the sidewalks. So what areas are you thinking here that this might work for? You know, this is going to work in any areas where we have narrow sidewalks. We don't have a lot of space to pass. Um, for example, parallel or adjacent to parks is a natural place um, because, of course, parks are a place where people are flocking to now. Uh, as I said, the Greenway Network is another natural space that we could be looking at. We've got that framework there. But some people don't even know that some of the roads are actually designated bikeways or greenways. And we can be um, providing signage and more guidance for people that those are spaces that we can be using. And you can adopt it. You can be walking your stroller with your baby. You can be jogging and making it to that. I've heard people, as I've been um, uh, talking about this, is people talk about Robson Street. We, we have a partial closure there. Can we be um, making better use of that street? But there's a number of areas. I wouldn't want this just in one part of the city, but we obviously have higher density areas where we see more foot traffic. Now, Councillor Dominato, do you think Vancouver has done enough here in providing these spaces or helping people through this? You know, I think that we've been adaptive, and I think that's one of the things that I think we've never been in a situation like this before, any of us. And so one of the key things is how do we ensure we're flexible, responsive, and nimble? And I think the city and, and the park board have been working hard to adapt as uh, things are evolving. Uh, and it has been evolving, as you know, day-to-day in terms of um, numbers of people who are identified with COVID, but also measures that need to be taken, as we've seen the health um, ministry adapt as well. Uh, I think we are doing a good job, but I do think we can be doing more. Because the other part of this is also uh, an equity issue. When you consider that we've got a a substantial number of residents who live in apartment buildings or a strata condo, who Mm -hmm. don't have access to private green space, and then we're seeing our public parks being heavily used. And so, again, um, how do we create more temporary open space for all people across the city? So how quickly can the city of Vancouver get this done? I actually think this is something uh, that we could do fairly quickly. I've started to have some conversations with staff. Uh, we've recently struck a, a working group of council to look at both our, our COVID recovery and response. But I think that's another area I'm going to bring this to as well as to that table. Um, but I mean, like I said, something as simple as at the end of some of our arterials that are already greenways, we can mount a signage that really makes it clear that this is a greenway and, hey, it's going to be used for pedestrians and cyclists and so if you're going to drive it you're going to be going slower or maybe just take a different route than taking that greenway path Um, but I've had really positive feedback so far from people about saying yes please um, adopt some additional measures within different parts of the city um, so that people feel safer. Yeah I think it needs to get done needs to get done fast. Uh, Thank you very much for your time on this. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me on, Simi. That is Lisa Dominato, Vancouver City Councillor, talking about opening up more space for people to walk out there so you don't have to do the dipsy doodle, uh, you know, that pedestrian dance that you do to make sure that everybody has space out there. If you're going to spend more time outside, you got to give people a little more elbow room out there as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we've heard a lot about how companies are trying to do their best to help out frontline workers in our healthcare system. It's incredibly important that they get all the support that they need right now. And the idea of TransLink layoffs that we heard about earlier this week, well, that's a big concern. That's a number of routes we're talking about. How are some of the essential workers out there going to get to their jobs if they don't have those bus routes or SkyTrain, Canada Line, whatever to depend on? Well, one company is kind of stepping up to help out with that. The CEO of BCAA is joining us now to talk about Evo Car Share. Uh, it is Eric Hopkins. Eric, thank you very much for being here. Hi, Simi. Thank you very much for uh, having me. I'm really honored to be here. Thanks a lot. Well, what is Evo doing to help out? Well, it's kind of exciting in that uh, Evo Car Share under BCA has created a healthcare worker program that we've actually taken 250 cars out of our fleet and dedicated them to individual use to make sure that our frontline workers have safe and reliable transportation to get to and from their jobs. Well, that's cool. How do you do that, though? How do you make sure these are going to be just used by frontline healthcare workers? Well, actually, with a lot of help from uh, local health authorities. So what we've done is reached out to health authorities across the province and asked them to help us build the program, help us build, understand what the need is. And so healthcare workers are actually going to their health authority, identifying they have a need, and then we're literally bringing them a car ready to go. That is so fantastic. So have you had already people signing up for this? Absolutely. We've got a little more than 70 cars in the market so far with uh, individuals helping them get to and from work. Probably another 40 over the next week, and we'd like to get to 250 as quickly as possible. So you will make sure then that there is a car in their neighborhood for them to use? No, even even more dedicated. We're going to give them the keys to the car. It's their car for them to use for free for as long as the crisis takes. You're kidding me. That's amazing. Well, it's, it's just one little thing we can do. And I know a lot of organizations are stepping up and we felt like there was an opportunity for us. Okay. So that is for anywhere. Is it like uh, all over Metro Vancouver or is there a particular area you're focusing on? No, all over Metro Vancouver. In fact, we've, we've cast the net wider. If there's need throughout the province, we're happy to help. I mean, obviously the farther out, the little more logistics for us to get the car there. But uh, yeah, we've got a car on the Sunshine Coast helping a, a, a frontline worker get to and from their work there today. Eric, I love this. Uh, and I understand that you're also like cleaning the car, sanitizing everything too? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, in in this environment, we've got strict cleaning protocols already. And so we've quadrupled those for our general fleet. Um, And these cars are arriving to each individual fully cleaned, fully insured, ready to go in top mechanical shape. So they should be able to just focus on what they do. Oh, man, Eric, I think this is just so fantastic. So great job uh, for BCA and Evo doing this. Um, And I also wanted to ask you, you know, no more smart cars out there. We heard Zipcar is going to be leaving the market. How has all of these changes in the car share market impacted Evo? Well, I mean, Evo has had a really nice run. You know, we, we were born here in uh, in British Columbia in Vancouver in 2015. And so over the last five years, we've only continued to grow. And it's too bad that uh, because of some outside factors that some of the uh, other players in the market have decided to leave. But in reality, we think it's really important for British Columbians, Vancouverites specifically, to have choice in the way that they can get around and to be able to supplement one another, whether they're taking public transportation, car sharing, or active transport, biking or walking. Um, We want to be one of their choices. 
So you feel like you might have to ramp up even a bit more as people start to get back to work? <laughs> you know, we're, we're constantly assessing that. I mean, you, you might have heard that we added another 250 cars earlier this year. Yeah. And our plans by the end of the year are to see how the market moves, obviously. I mean, what we've been very clear to our members that in this environment, you should just be using Evo Car Share for essential trips, just for grocery, for medicine, or if, or if you're a frontline right. or essential worker. So obviously, our uh, total volume has gone down during the uh, during the crisis and you know it's the one time where doing the right thing for society may help your business hurt your business a tiny bit but it's it's absolutely the right thing and so as we come back out of this we'll absolutely do what's right eric thank you so much for your time this morning I really appreciate it. Thank you, Simeon. Have a great day. You too. Eric Hopkins, CEO of BCAA. They have, of course, Evo Car Share. They are providing those cars free to frontline healthcare workers till the end of May and even beyond if they are needed. So good on them.